Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 21st, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, it's, uh, we don't have a lot of news today, but uh, we got some interesting – actually, we got a late-breaking news that uh, Danny Boyle is leaving uh, the Bond series, Bond 25, uh, over creative differences. Jacob, I know you are a big James Bond fan. You've been uh, our main correspondent on this whole Bond watch. Uh, what is going on here? Well, earlier today – uh, Eon, the company that produces the Bond films, announced Danny Boyle is leaving Bond 25, which is currently untitled, uh, over creative differences, which is the blanket term <laughs> they always use in Hollywood when somebody needs to leave something. So for all I know, this was a completely amicable split. For all I know, there was screaming matches. We don't know. We don't. Uh, I've been watching around the internet to see if anybody has shed some light on why this happened. We do not know. The only fact right now is that Danny Boyle is no longer directing the 25th James Bond movie. And this is simultaneously surprising and not surprising. It's surprising because it's shocking. The film was being written. It was going to start shooting in December. It has a release date for next year. But it's not surprising because Danny Boyle doesn't quite fit the mold of a Bond director. Uh, for decades, the Bond series was very much about finding these journeyman directors who can come in, call the shots, make sure things are done on time and on budget. All the producers, the, the Broccoli family, uh, who have controlled the Bond rights since the beginning, sort of shaped the vision of the series. And only in recent years, with uh, Mark Forster and Sam Mendes directing the last three films, has there been this shift toward these auteur directors, these guys with the vision sort of taking hold. But Danny Boyle, more so than those guys, uh, he's a very distinctive director, very distinctive style. And while we don't know for sure what happened, I can't help but shake the feeling that Danny Boyle wanted to make a Danny Boyle film, whereas the Bond producers wanted a Bond film. Uh, so I, I'm not surprised at this split. And now the big question now is who takes over? Yeah, that that is the big question. I I know the internet is all you know Chris Nolan, Chris Nolan, Chris Nolan, but I feel like if they had problems with Danny Boyle, 
<laughs> then uh, <laughs> I don't think the creative juice, you know, it, 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 Chris Nolan needs to be given the creative freedom, right? Of course. Chris Nolan is always a popular choice because Chris Nolan is a Bond fan, has gone on the record as being a Bond fan. But he's the exact opposite of a person you want making a Bond movie. You want somebody who plays nice, who works within, works within the Bond sandbox. And Chris Nolan, he makes Christopher Nolan movies. He makes movies he wants to make. Uh, if uh, if the Bond producers sold the Bond rights and went off to retire and another studio got it, and maybe Chris Nolan someday in the future, but not right now. Who I suggested in the uh, article I wrote in Slash Film I think that they need somebody like Martin Campbell, who directed GoldenEye and Casino Royale. This really solid director, really good at action, really good at character work, has experience directing this kind of movie, who also plays nice, who also knows how to deliver a film for the producers. That's the kind of role that the Bond director requires. And I wouldn't be surprised if Martin Campbell was somebody who they've had discussions about, because it would be a nice bookend if he directed the first Daniel Craig Bond movie and the final one. Uh, But... Uh, Campbell's been very iffy about returning to the Bond series, and there's all these tabloidy rumors about how him and Craig didn't get along. Uh, so even if it's not Martin Campbell, I think somebody in that vein is who we should be looking for. We shouldn't be looking at uh, Christopher Nolan. We should be looking at these guys who uh, are working professionals and who maybe see themselves as, you know, um, craftsmen rather than artists. Yeah. <laughs> um... You know, I also see a lot on Twitter, you know, a lot of people were recommending Christopher McQuarrie, uh, which seems a little bit on the nose to me, you know, after him doing two Mission Impossible movies. Uh, Chris HT, do you have any suggestions on who you would like to see direct a Bond movie? Uh, I don't really have any strong opinions. I just have never had a really strong connection with the Bond movies, except for perhaps Skyfall. And it was because of those artistic sort of license that Sam Mendes took. So, yeah, just like do what you want, Bond people. (laughs) I'm I'm on the same page as you. Uh, Chris, I know you like the Bond movies a little bit more than us. Uh, What do you think? Uh, I'll do it. I will direct the film <laughs> if they want me to do it. Uh, just <laughs> hit me up. I'm on Twitter. Um, no, I, uh, I, like Jacob said, you know, there, you know, there are a lot of people on Twitter suggesting big names and that's not going to happen. It's going to be again, like Jacob said, it's going to be like a, a workman director. It's going to be someone who can deliver it on time and under on budget. And it's not going to be, so it's not going to be Guy Ritchie. Right. It's not going to be. And like I'm I'm seeing people see, suggesting Chris, Christopher McQuarrie and he just did Mission Impossible. There's no way he's going to be like, yes, I will do Bond now. That's I mean, as great as that would be, he's a great director. It's it's not going to happen. So, you know, just temper your expectations. Just give us a man from Uncle sequel. That's all we need. Also, speaking of Macquarie, there's no way they let an American direct a Bond movie. They'll let any other nationality direct a Bond movie, but the day they let an American do is the day the Bond franchise is on its last legs. <laughs> yeah, it, it was actually interesting, too, that like I think there was rumors recently that the, uh, the Broccoli family was uh, thinking about selling the, the Bond franchise. So, uh, I don't know. It seems like this news seems to suggest that they, they are still very heavily involved and in not wanting to give up their creative control, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they did have those thoughts about selling it because uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, uh, who've been running the franchise since the 90s, since GoldenEye, when uh, Barbara's father, Cubby Broccoli, died, uh, they're not young people. I bet they want to enjoy their retirement. I bet they would take the many millions of dollars they can get from selling the Bond movies uh, and going off and enjoying themselves. 
but I think that if that does happen, it'll be long after Daniel Craig is done, after Bond 25, after that dust has settled. Okay, let's move on to our next bit of news, and that is that Kevin Smith is doing a Hit Girl comic uh, set in the Kick-Ass universe that will pit uh, the Kick-Ass character against the Predators of Hollywood. HT, what is going on? So this new comic uh, four-issue miniseries is called Hit Girl, The Golden Rage of Hollywood, uh, quite on the nose. And it's penned by Kevin Smith. It's his first project uh, after he's been recovering from his heart attack that he had earlier uh, this year. And uh, he wrote a four-issue miniseries for the Hit Girl comic book run uh, that will also uh, feature contributions by Jeff Lemire and Eduardo Riso. So Hit Girl, The Golden Rage of Hollywood follows Hit Girl as she heads to Hollywood to um, target the predators of Hollywood in their comeuppance post Harvey Weinstein. And it kind of is very timely and on the nose. And uh, because this is Miller World, of course, Me Too movement has to have a healthy heaping of bloodshed and violence. (laughs) Um, And uh, it is interesting that Kevin Smith is doing this because, you know, Kevin Smith, uh, his entire career is probably owed to Harvey Weinstein. Uh, I wonder if the Harvey Weinstein will appear as a character in uh, you know this Kickass comic book, I like. I feel like you know Deadpool and Kickass are the only two kind of like big franchises that kind of can kind of pull off that kind of uh, mix of uh, meta ness in the real world. Uh, J- Jacob, uh, you you are our biggest comic book guy on the site. And I know you're not a huge fan of Kickass, but what do you think of this news? I think it fits very much in with the Mark Millar template. Uh, even though he's not writing it, it's this is very much about uh, being as sh- shocking and as offensive as possible um, while going after targets who are easy to hit. And that's fine. I mean, I'm all for a comic book where a uh, female superhero takes revenge on the worst of the worst. Uh, and uh, I don't think we'll see Harvey Weinstein in it, but I bet we'll see an analog. We'll see somebody who looks and sounds a lot like him so they don't get sued. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Mark Millar. He he has his thing. Kevin Smith seems to be playing into that thing, and that's fine. I mean, Kevin Smith's, a, for my money, uh, a better comic book writer than he's a film director because it allows him to emphasize his strengths, which is writing, while he lets an artist handle the visuals. So even though I won't pick this up, I mean, if you're a kick-ass fan, if you like Mark Millar, if you like Kevin Smith, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good combination of things. Yeah, if if you are a Kevin Smith fan and have never checked out some of his comic book runs, I would highly recommend checking out his run on Daredevil, which uh, back in the day, I remember it being uh, fantastic. Uh, it's probably on the level of the good stuff that comes out today. Uh, does he have any other uh, comic book runs that you might recommend, Jacob? Uh, I actually really enjoyed his uh, Green uh, Arrow run which is all collected, I believe, in one big hardcover if that, if that interests you, uh, mainly because uh, Green Arrow is a character who's not sacred to a lot of people, so he's he managed to have a lot of fun with him that way. Yes. Okay, let's move on to our next bit of news, and that is for the Star Wars animated series, Star Wars Resistance. Uh, we now have learned that Leia Organa will be part of that series, and it will be set six months before The Force Awakens. Chris, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Um, yeah, so we're starting to get a better idea of how the Star Wars world, the Star Wars universe is going to handle Leia as a character in the aftermath of uh, Carrie Fisher's death. I mean, as we already know, uh, archival footage of Carrie Fisher is going to be used for the next Star Wars film. And now 
uh, her char- you know, her character, uh, General Leia Organa, is going to be a character in uh, Star Wars Resistance, voiced by voice actress Rachel Butira, who has a very long career of nothing but voice acting. So she's kind of a pro at this. Uh, and yeah, um, at one point, someone when the trailer for Star Wars Resistance dropped, someone uh, went ahead and looked at the the source code of the trailer on the Star Wars website. And buried in that code was a synopsis that revealed the show is set about six months before The Force Awakens. And then after this broke, they went someone on the Star Wars website went back and removed that. So for some reason, they're trying to keep the the timeline of the show a secret. I'm not really sure why, but that's the the general idea we have now is that it's set about six months before The Force Awakens. Um you know, having General Leia in the show shouldn't come out as a huge surprise. I mean, this does follow the Resistance before Force Awakens, and she is a general in the Resistance. She's a big part of that. So uh, it, it is uh, – I, I am glad that they were able to find a voice actress to, to play the character, and they're not trying to, like, piece it together with lines from, you know, uh, Carrie Fisher's career or something like that. But – um it is interesting, I think, this news that if it is set six months before Force, The Force Awakens, I think that seems to signal that, there, that in my mind, this animated series doesn't have a um, – has kind of like a short runway of, uh, of, of what it could do because – once they hit the events of Force Awakens, uh, you know, Force Awakens and then Last Jedi happen kind of like back to back. Unless they're going to jump in time to the events between Last Jedi and, you know, whatever they call Episode Nine, uh, they only have six months of material, which, you know, if you look at like, you know, uh, Star Wars Rebels, that took place over, you know... A handful of years. Each one of those seasons was almost like a year in the rebellion. So, uh, I'm I'm wondering what you guys think. Do, 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 do you think this indicates that this show as a whole is just going to take place as a prequel to Force Awakens, or do you think this is something they could keep on going with after you know uh, Episode Nine and like do a time jump? Well, one thing that's I I think is that if you look look at the original trilogy, there is this big space between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, whereas there's not much time between Empire and Return of the Jedi. So, so many of the original Star Wars books, comics, spin-off stories, video games, so many of them took place between Star Wars and Empire because there's this big, juicy chunk of time in which you could have the freedom to tell a lot of stories. So you're right, six months is not a lot of time to tell a lot of stories for Star Wars Resistance. But I wouldn't be surprised if they used the six months to set up the characters, set up this world... And then maybe uh, jump forward like a year or two uh, in like season two and start exploring the space after uh, Last Jedi and start building that space as the new uh, air, the new playground, the new area where all the rest of the comics and video games and TV shows take place. Because you really can't say anything between the first two movies, but I think we're going to see this really healthy space in between the second and third movies where a lot of stuff is going to start taking place. And I think this show may be quietly sliding into that position. I also wonder if, you know, I've speculated on this podcast about Better Call Saul in this way, but I wonder if, if they're going to do that, if they could do it in a way that, you know, the second season or third season of Star Wars Resistance takes place during the events of Force Awakens and, you know, Last Jedi, but shows them from a totally different angle with different characters and stuff like that. Uh, or if that, I don't know, I'm, I'm wondering if, 
if that would even be compelling on, uh, you know, for television audiences. Whatever the case, this series starts airing this October, October 7th. Uh, So we will see it uh, before we see, uh, you know, J.J. Abrams' Star Wars Episode Nine, and uh, we'll find out more then. But let's move on to our next story, and that is of the box office. Uh, Leading up to the release of Crazy Rich Asians, we're wondering how well it would do at the box office. You know, there was a lot of people invested in uh, a movie of this uh, caliber succeeding. Our own David Chen of the Slash Film cast bought out an entire theater uh, in support of this movie because he he wanted to see it do well. Uh, And now we have the box office results, which, uh, uh, Jacob, you can talk about, but uh, I'm actually a little bit more interested in this Kevin Spacey movie, which had an embarrassing debut but uh t- tell us about both of them jacob yeah i'm gonna start with the uh, the good news which is crazy rich asians opened to 34 million dollars over its five-day opening from wednesday through sunday which is i'd say about 15 uh 16 million more than some of the early estimates had it and for a movie that costs 30 million for a romantic comedy about a marginalized group of people that's really strong and i'm really curious to see the second weekend see how little or how much it drops off but at this point, it's pretty much a hit, and it, that's really exciting news for a movie that really seems to be uh, thrilling a lot of people and warming a lot of hearts. And I know uh, HT can say a lot more about the movie than I, I can, so I, I'll stop there. It's just a – it's really lovely to see it top the box office. But for those of us who like reveling in disaster, uh, there is the Billionaire Boys Club, a movie that was dumped into a handful of theaters – and made $618 over its three-day uh, opening weekend. That's uh, 618 not 6000 not 60000 That's three numbers, $618. As movie stars uh, Ansel Elgort, Taron Egerton, Emma Roberts, uh, and, well, Kevin Spacey. And so the headlines these, over the past few days have been making fun of the fact that Kevin Spacey now disgraced following uh, all of his inappropriate behavior, like I'm fired in House of Cards, uh, has starred in a movie that had a disastrous opening. And in one level, it's a, maybe a slightly disingenuous to put us all on Kevin Spacey. Billionaire Boys Club was shot two and a half years ago. It was being dumped into theaters. It's being released on VOD at the same time. It was never going to make a lot of money. It was always going to be a disaster. It was always going to be that was swept under the rug as fast as possible. But because Kevin Spacey's in it, it becomes the story of Kevin Spacey and his continued box office decline. Uh, so it's just uh, it went from being a movie that was just going to be a footnote to a movie that's just another embarrassment, another uh, chapter in the downfall of Kevin Spacey, and he's dragging down uh, everybody else with him. So I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, is this a story about Kevin Spacey, or is just a Kevin Spacey label being placed onto a movie that otherwise would never be noticed? Well, I mean, I do think you're right. It, it, it is uh, a movie that would have otherwise not gotten noticed. It was played in 10 screens. Um, if you do the math here, <laughs> Jacob, uh, <laughs> it looks like, you know, 62 to 60, maybe 60 to 70 people probably saw this movie. And then if you divide that per screen, that's what, like six or seven people per screen over a week period or weekend period. That That's pretty, that's pretty horrible. Like, yeah, most, it's horrible. Most <laughs> I saw, most independent Sorry, go movies I go to see at my local AMC theater have more than that in one screening, you know, and like you, these are really small movies, uh, not with stars like Kevin Spacey. 
Oh, yeah, I'm all about Duncan Kevin Spacey. Let, let's 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 trash him, man. He 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 deserves it. I'm just not entirely convinced that people were avoiding this because it's Kevin Spacey. I think they're avoiding it because it's an Ansel Elgort movie with a very bad title. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but that's just me. Actually, I was when I was looking up because I, I was so morbidly fascinated by this just horrible performance that uh, I was looking up the story and it's based on a real story and it also had a, a TV movie that was released um, I think in the 90s and that was I think really funny with the same title as well Billionaire Boys Club and um, that was really funny to me because I, I don't know if that one did any better it was a TV movie but it's not a it's not an uncommon title I guess. I mean, I personally didn't even know this movie was out. So I do kind of agree that, you know, even though I have no problem mocking Kevin Spacey, uh, I do think this is more a case of no one actually even is aware this movie exists. Like I've seen zero advertisement for it. So, yeah, when, when you have people working for a movie website full time who have not seen any advertisements for a movie, that probably tells you something. Uh, but okay, let's move on to our last and uh, final stories. Uh, first up, Mr. Robot season four. Is that going to be the final season? HT, what do we know? Uh, according to star Christian Slater, it may be the, the, the final season. So in an interview with Collider, Christian Slater says that he believes the upcoming fourth season will be the last season, which kind of uh, is in line with uh creator Sam Esmail's uh, predictions from a few years ago that the show would last four or five seasons, depending on USA. So um, Slater said, um, Esmail always said it was going to be somewhere in that zone, and he he didn't want to go any further than what he could creatively contribute to that storyline. So I think that season four will be it. So it kind of makes sense because um, Sam Esmail originally uh, pitched this story as a feature film, and he always had an idea for where the story would, would end. Uh, with um, the show and uh, the third season kind of felt like it was hurtling towards some sort of ending anyways and the momentum has been kind of slowing down since we've had longer breaks between seasons and not to mention Sam Esmail is becoming more and more busy uh, with his um, prepping his return to feature filmmaking with a uh, film also with Mr. Robot star uh, Rami Malek so that would and it kind of makes sense that he would uh, be turning his eyes to other things. Yeah, and like the storyline on on that show, as you said, is escalating at a point that you can't keep escalating further. Like at some point it has to reach a peak and ending, and I feel like it it makes sense for season four to be that uh, climactic ending. Uh, But we'll see. Um, Let's get to our last story, and that is Blumhouse would love to raise the dark universe from the grave. Chris, I know you are ironically a fan of the dark universe uh do you want to see this happen i do actually uh yeah so jason blum was on twitter answering some random q a questions from everyone and anyone and someone casually asked him if uh he would like to take over the dark universe which as we all know is universal's uh instantly failed attempt to start their own uh, Marvel-like cinematic universe using their classic monsters. And uh, Jason Blum responded that, yes, he would. Now, of course, this isn't an official announcement. This doesn't mean Jason Blum is uh, taking it over, but it's not out of line of question. I mean, Blumhouse has a, a deal with Universal, so something like that could potentially happen. And uh, personally, you know, I, if this happened, it would probably be much better than 
the approach they were originally taking because, uh, you know, Blumhouse, they make low budget uh, horror movies. And that's really the best way to approach these classic monsters. I mean, one of the biggest mistakes Universal made with their Dark Universe is that they were approaching these films as like big action movies, which I don't think anyone honestly wants. I mean, you know, horror as a genre is bigger now than it's ever been. People want horror, especially when they think of, you know, the classic universal monsters, they don't think of them in terms of action heroes. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what is going to happen with the dark universe at this point, if anything, but when, and if universal decides to try it again, they'd be wise to take a, a lower budget horror-based approach similar to what Blumhouse does. Yeah, well, Blumhouse is just so profitable. Their whole, um, you know, method of making movies on the cheap, uh, using constraints creatively, and uh, able to, you know, make huge successes out of uh, small-budget films. We, we, we saw the success of The Shape of Water, which could have easily been uh, The Creature from the Black Lagoon in the, in the Dark Universe. Uh, I, I would love to see a Blumhouse uh, Universal Monster series. Maybe not Dark Universe. Maybe they could call it something else. I think we need to, you know, bury, uh, pun intended, <laughs> the Dark Universe. Uh, Jacob. The Darker Universe. Darker Universe. <laughs> uh, Jacob, would you like to see Blumhouse do the Dark Universe? And w- what is your pitch for a Blumhouse-style uh, reinterpretation of the Universal Monsters franchise? Oh, uh, I absolutely want to see this. People forget because they are so revered that the original Universal Monster movies were B movies. They were made on super low budgets, um, a shot in on quick schedules, starring non stars. You know, they were they were very much the kind of movies Blumhouse makes now, uh, except being made in the '30s and '40s. So this is actually a perfect fit. And what I would want to see is uh, for Blumhouse to embrace the fact that they're low budget movies and just make these small, intense, character-driven horror stories. I mean, uh, take Frankenstein, take Dracula, uh, but give it that ruthless edge that the best Blumhouse movies have. Give it, you know, that sort of the um, social intensity of uh, Get Out. Give it the lurking dread of paranormal activity. Uh, don't make it truth or dare. Avoid that. <laughs> Get some directors <laughs> who, who know what they're doing. Uh, but, I don't know, I guess it's, I, I love the idea of the heroes in these movies being uh, professors in... in uh, who, who, who pour over books filled with dread as opposed to Tom Cruise being an action hero. So I want monsters, I want professors, I want 90-minute runtimes, and I want low budgets, and that's that'll be perfect for me. So you want an exhibition or exhibition with a bunch of uh, uh, professors and scientists into a ancient mummy tomb, and they get trapped inside, and it's told from found footage? <laughs> you know, uh, other than the found footage part, you're describing what sounds like a pretty good uh, take on the mummy. I'll, I'll take that. But even then, I'll take the found footage version too because I'm a sucker for that nonsense. HJ, do you do you do you want to see the Blumhouse do the Universal Monster franchise? I'm actually intrigued by that too because I do like the the low budget approach for these kind of movies. I do agree that they, I feel like they've they've always been B movies to me, and they I feel like they would do best to uh, stick with that. So, yeah, I, I'm down to see it. I don't have a huge um, knowledge of all the Blumhouse, like, styles and um, and flares, but I, uh, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yes. Uh, I, I, for some reason, don't think it's going to happen. Universal, I think, 
thinks there's too much money and if they uh you know give them the blumhouse maybe it would be you know for a term like ghettoizing the you know the this uh, huge franchise into a lower budget kind of realm um where they, they you know they, they've made so much money off the universal monsters over the last hundred years is that correct jacob oh um maybe a little, a little less than 100 but yeah less, it's yeah but like 80 90 years at this point yeah so uh yeah i just don't see this happening as much as i would like to see it happen uh but yeah we have reached the end of today's slash film daily jacob where can people find more of your work online i'm on slashfilm.com every single day and i'm on twitter where i'm at jacob s hall hd where can we find more of your work I'm also every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. And Chris, where can I find you? Uh, also SlashFilm.com and on Twitter at Evangelista 413 You can find me at SlashFilm on all social media. You can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes and on SlashFilm.com. SlashFilm Daily, this podcast, is published every weekday on SlashFilm.com, on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at SlashFilm.com. And go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.